It is the first Sunday of Lent. Did you know that? Ash Wednesday was this past Wednesday, and um, this is the first Sunday of Lent at Covenant Church. We, we don't necessarily make a big splash of Ash Wednesday. We had Family Connect on Wednesday night. It's 6 o'clock, and you're welcome to come this Wednesday night because we have it every Wednesday night. But we, we, we didn't take time aside to talk about Ash Wednesday. We don't necessarily take time aside to think about Lent. But I, I was kind of curious what, what it being the first Sunday of Lent might mean for you. Uh, to some of you, it means this. Some really good fish dinners around the valley, right? The fish fries will be replete with great kinds of stuff. So you're like, oh, thank God it's Lent. I can't wait to go to the fish fries, right? To some of you, uh, Lent might mean giving up something. And uh, this next picture was something that I used to, to give up for Lent every year. Asparagus and Brussels sprouts. How holy am I, right? <laughs> giving up asparagus. But here's the deal. I like asparagus and Brussels sprouts now, so I don't give it up anymore. It's just not what it is. Right? So, so, but for some of you, the reality is, is that it's something that you give up. Heaven forbid we give up chocolate for Lent, right? That just doesn't, doesn't work. Uh, so some of you more spiritual than me, right? Uh, it is this devotion to God that we kind of come around. My wife is much more uh, religious, much more spiritual than I. She, she is reading a book this uh, Lent uh, called 40 Days of Decrease, which is an amazing uh, study that her less than holy husband joins her in every once in a while. But, but Lent does have a clear story, right, uh, of how uh, it, it is this sense of our devotion to God, even though there is not a clear story of actually how Lent began. Most point back to the 4th century in the Council of Nicaea as a place where the church recognized a need for a season of repentance and fasting for 40 days prior to Easter. Not a bad thing, right? It was in reflection of the 40 days in the wilderness for Jesus as he prepared for his earthly ministry, or the 40, days in the, or 40 years in the wilderness for the people of Israel as they prepared for the promised land. Uh, listen to me this morning. Uh, Lent is not a bad thing. It is just often a misunderstood and misused thing. And in many circles has led to a misunderstanding of the Christian life, listen, as a life of needing to give up the fun stuff to focus on being a better person. Right? How many of you have experienced that in, in the life of church? You've heard it maybe even from uh, this pulpit from me, <laughs> the reality that, that sometimes we, we think of our spiritual journey as this behavioral modification. Right? I've got to give up but drinking... Smoking, chewing, dating girls that do, right? All, all of those things. And it's this sense of giving up the bad stuff so that I can become a better person. And I'm just here to clarify on this first Sunday of Lent that that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. I love that we have landed on our text today on the first Sunday of Lent. I wish I could say that I looked ahead and planned it this way, but that would be a lie. Um, in, in all truth, it is kind of God doing his thing and me stumbling upon what God is already doing, right? Which is fun for me as I come to these moments. It is a text that might easily become a behavior modification sermon. Do better. 
But at its core, this is not about behavior modification, but rather, listen, life transformation. About the miracle of God changing us and us finding joy in Him. It's another story, if you're just joining us this morning, either online or here, uh, another story in the story, ongoing story of Elisha that we've been covering over these last seven weeks. A story that is a picture of life giving hope in hard places, a picture of restoration. In fact, uh, I realized this week that I gave you a memory verse a couple weeks ago, and then we've not revisited it at all. So some of you have been so diligent, I'm sure, and have still memorized this verse, uh, but I want to come back and review it. So I was, I think, five weeks in before I discovered that this was a good memory verse for us for this series, and then I've forgotten about it there. But I'm going to bring it back this morning, right? Revelation 21.5, some of you know it. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then he said, I know you're going to forget this, Right? So write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. This is a great memory verse, right? Revelation 21, the reality of the second coming of Christ. And he who sits on the throne is indeed God. And it is him who is saying that he is making all things new. That's the story of Elisha. God restoring out of the the desperate places of exile hope that he is making all things new. I trust, pray that you have experienced that over these last seven weeks as we have walked through these texts. It's a picture, folks, that should blow our minds, make us run to God and do one of those Matthew Geary spins, right? As, as someone, God being someone who is indescribable, uncontainable, all-powerful, and amazing God, a strong God, a mighty fortress to whom we would say hallelujah and amen. And I hope and trust and pray that you are ready even this morning to continue in that thought. So turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. We've been in 2 Kings chapter 4 for a long time, it feels like, and we will finish today. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. We have seen in... Uh, these texts that Elisha has done miracles on behalf of the nation of Israel in the defeat of the Moabite army. Uh, In chapter 4, we've seen him do personal miracles in the lives of two very different women, both in need of miracles. And today we see Elisha doing miracles in the context of the church, among a school of prophets. And again, it is a miracle that points to hope as a miracle of life transformation. 2 Kings chapter 4 starting in verse 38. This is the very word of God. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine. What was there? You guys are so good. A famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, sit on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lapful of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat, but while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. 
He said, Elisha did, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour out some for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat, for such is what thus says the Lord. They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Uh, May God help us in the understanding of his word. Three thoughts this morning that make up our sermon in a sentence, right? That God wants to make the bad in our life good, the good in our life more, and he does it all so that we might trust him. God wants to make the bad in our life good, the good in our life more, and all so that we might trust him. First thought this morning in this text is that God wants to make the bad in our life good. You, 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 you see what's happening here, right? You, you get the picture. Elisha has gone to Gilgal to do discipleship training with a school of prophets. And at the time, there is a famine. What is there? A famine in the land, and there is no Dalisandros to cook. Right? Elisha instructs his servant, maybe Gehazi, because Gehazi has been identified as his servant to this point, to put on a pot for stew. Does anybody think that sounds weird? You're in a what? Yeah, and you're putting on the largest pot for Stew. Huh. It's an unusual request in a day of famine, but the prophets must eat. And there is a guy among the prophets. He is the deacon of all deacons, right? So he's just one of the prophets, one of those sitting there, and he hears the command to put on stew, and and he just, he can't take the long meeting they're having in discipleship training anyhow. He's got to go do something. You you know these people, right? And and so he he takes off, and he he runs out, and he says, I'm going to gather herbs for the stew, because I know there ain't going to be much in this stew because we're in a what? A famine, right? And so we need herbs to go into the stew to make the stew at least taste like flavored water, right? So he's out to find these herbs. Probably doesn't find many herbs because we're in a what? A famine. He does not want to return empty-handed, though, and so he notices a vine. It has all kinds of interesting, colorful gourds on it. And there's a ton of them. And he says, what a find. How fortunate I am. I can't believe everybody else missed this. And so he starts cutting off the gourds. And it says that he gets a lapful. Uh, the, the Hebrew here is, talks about the reality of his garment. And so if you get the, the picture, he's made a pocket in his garment and he has loaded it with gourds. Right? Because there were plenty. And he goes running back and he thinks, I'm going to be like the dude, man. We got all kinds of stuff for the stew. A thought, real quick. When there is a food famine and you find a lot of something, you might want to ask a couple of questions. Like one of those questions would be, is this edible? (laughs) Is it safe? He didn't ask those questions. Here's an applied thought, right? 
when you, when we are in a spiritual famine, we might want to be aware that what seems to be very available to us is often not godliness, but worldliness. When we're in a spiritual famine, the things that seem so evident and opportunistic for us are usually not good for us. When we are left spiritually hungry, what will be our default as broken people will be that there is plenty of what is easy to pick. And what is easy to pick is usually the fruit of our sin, of our temptations. It has been said, today, the greatest challenge facing American evangelicalism is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. I'll let that sink in. So be aware and be warned. There are a lot of things out there that look good, but are really poison. And and listen, that would make a great Lenten sermon, wouldn't it? A warning about worldliness. Can you see it on the marquee? A warning, everybody would have flocked in to hear. A warning about worldliness in our spiritual famines. But it's not the point of this text. So our story continues. The good servant returns. He cuts up the gourds. The stew is complete. It is dinner time. They've said grace. And as the prophets eat the stew, they immediately experience stomach cramps. This is not a 24-hour later thing. This is like, as I eat it, stomach cramps. And the vomit express begins. Those of you drawing pictures, that is a very vivid picture to draw. The vomit express begins. And the men cry out, there is death in the pot. Right? And of course, everyone stops eating. My my immediate thought is this. If the consequences of our feasting on worldliness were so immediate and violent, I have a feeling we would more often avoid worldliness. I've said it before. It used to be a plaque that hung in my office. If the consequences of sin were immediate, we would sin (laughs) much less. But sometimes the poison in our pot is not so obvious. Like the frog in the kettle. You've heard that, right? You put a frog in a kettle of lukewarm water. He's quite happy. And if you begin, and for all those frog lovers, this is just, you might want to sing to yourself or something for just a second. Uh, But if you put that frog in the warm kettle and you turn up the heat, the frog doesn't know to jump out, right? And, And as the water gets hotter, Around him, he doesn't notice it, and in not noticing it, he'll actually die in that pot of boiling water. And we as Christians, church, are often like that frog. We kind of gingerly, gently, innocently enter into things, and sin surrounds us, but then the heat begins to turn up, and we don't realize that, and it brings spiritual famine, it brings spiritual death. One of the greatest deceptions of the devil is convincing us that our sin is not actually sin, or at least not as bad as our neighbor's sin. And so we continue to consume the death in our pot. And it's a good question to ask ourselves, what is the death in our pot? That would make a great Lenten sermon, right? Put that on the marquee. What's the death in your pot? That would fill the pews. Some of you get what I'm saying, right? It's actually not a bad prayer. It's a prayer that David prays in Psalm 139. God, search me and know me. There's a scary prayer. Tell me what's in my 
pots. But that's not the point of this text. So at this point, you're going, what? What's the point? Glad you asked. I want you to see what happens next. Elisha calls for some flour that he adds to the stew. And then he says, pour some out for the men that they may eat it. Now, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I mean, if you're one of those prophets and you've just lost your cookies, right, over the stew, and Elisha just kind of sprinkles a little bit of flour in it, and then he goes, okay, now eat the stew. What are you saying? I I know what I'm saying in my sin. Elisha, you eat the stew and I'll eat the stew, right? When I see it doesn't bother you, maybe I'll join in because I would rather be much more comfortable throwing out the whole pot of stew and starting over than trusting that that little bit of flour has changed something. But look, they eat the stew and there was no harm in the pot. In fact, the stew was life-giving. And this is the point. Do you see it? Listen, it's not just about avoiding the gourds of the world. While this is good advice, it's behavior modification. It's not just picking out the bad gourds in your pot of death. While this is good advice, it's behavior modification. Rather, listen, it is inviting Jesus, who is the bread of life. See what God's doing there, right? It's like he wrote this whole thing. You see it? So there's, what, flour going into the stew, And later in John 6.35, Jesus says what? I am the bread of life. Right? And when you feast on me, you'll never go hungry. When you drink of me, you'll never go thirsty. And so here he is, right? An invitation. An invitation to eat that which Christ has made well. Flour that cleanses the stew becomes Jesus who has made us clean by his life, his death, his resurrection. And what this text is about, ladies and gentlemen, for us as we sit in 2021, is inviting Jesus, who is the bread of life, into our pot of death, that it might give life to us in our spiritual famines. Paul writes in Romans 6, It's on the screen. Um, These amazing verses, and it's a sermon in itself, but I want you and I hope and pray that you catch the connection here of what Paul says in Romans 6 to the reality of the flower in the pot. Paul says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him being Christ, right? In order that the body of sin might be brought to what? The body of sin brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, in believing in Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So here's the... uh, The the summary sentence for Paul. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul is saying? Your pot of death has been cleaned by Christ. Your pot of death has been cleaned 
by Christ. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Lent is not simply about avoiding worldliness or throwing out your dirty stew. And then then Jesus will somehow use you? Listen, that that is not what Lent is about. It's not what the Bible teaches. But rather, invite Jesus to cleanse you, forgive you, and trust that he will actually take your stew and use it for good. That will actually be life-giving and empower you to avoid the deadly gourds of the world. Have you seen this in your life? Have you seen the miracle of the flower in your life that you knew at a point in time because the Spirit of God had convicted you to the reality of your sin and you knew that you were unworthy to be before a holy God. You, like Paul, recognized that you were busy about doing the things that you knew you shouldn't, but not doing the things that you know you should. And, and then this amazing teaching, whether it's a, a teaching from someone behind a pulpit, whether it was the Spirit of God, whether it was the Word of God, whether it was a friend, whether it was a parent, says and communicates to you, listen, that is why Christ has come. Because as the conviction of your sin rises, even as Paige shared with us today, is the reality of the goodness of Christ that comes to make all things new. That we would be dead to our sin and alive in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. And Elisha, with a little bit of flour and a really bad stew, are telling us that gospel. Remember the day, the time, the moment, the season of your life in which you knew that you were God's, that he loved you, and that he had forgiven you of your sin. Have you seen it in someone else's life? Sometimes that is an amazing miracle in itself, right? That you see someone, and you see them in conviction to sin, and yet they get it. That moment when the light bulb goes on, and all of a sudden, they realize they don't have to work their way to Jesus. They don't got to get all clean before they come to Jesus. That they just simply need to invite Jesus to make them clean, and then they're, they're live their lives as ones who are in love with Jesus. Personally, for me, some of the most amazing stories have been stories of people in drug and alcohol recovery as they walk through this. Their shame, legitimately, is deep. And then they realize that that Jesus, that the flour, the bread of life into that poisonous pot of their life has made them new. And if you talk to folks that have walked that journey, very rarely will you hear someone say, man, I wish that I wouldn't have done all those things. I wish I could take that pot of stew and toss it out. What they say is, I'm glad that I was in that place, that I would be so desperate to know that Jesus has cleansed me. That's the story. It is the story of the gospel. Maybe today, watching online here live, is a day in which you have come face to face with the reality of your poisonous pot. Maybe you've spent a lot of time and energy trying to avoid those bad things and you simply can't. Or maybe you've been trying to take the things that are in your dead pot and throw them out and they 
keep coming back. Maybe today you hear that it's not about avoiding worldliness or starting anew, but it's inviting Jesus to forgive you, to cleanse you, to make you new. Because God wants to make the bad things in your life good. Life giving. But the story doesn't stop there. Because in this is two stories, God secondly wants to take the good in your life and make more. Did you catch the second story in the text? A man comes from what we know to be a faraway land, but he seeks out Elisha the prophet to present him with the first fruits. They're living in what? A famine. <laughs> you would think that whatever you harvested, you would cherish, right? And yet here is a man who has traveled a far distance to offer unto Elisha and therefore offer unto God the first fruits, the very first part of his harvest. It's 20 loaves of barley bread and some grain. And as he shares them with Elisha, Elisha instructs him to give the prophets the goods that he has brought. The man looks at the number of prophets. We are told here that there are a hundred of them. And says, this is not nearly enough to feed them all. Elisha repeats himself. In case you didn't hear me, I want you to give it to all the people, to all the prophets. Because according to the word of the Lord that I'm hearing is not only will there be enough, but there'll be some left over. And so he begins to distribute the loaves. And indeed, it says that there was enough for all and some left over. Now you biblical scholars, right, as you are, those of you that love the New Testament and the story of Jesus love the Gospels, should hear something familiar in this. Every Gospel has accounted for Jesus as he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Some tell a second story of feeding 4,000, taking what is very little, and the disciples going, there ain't enough, and Jesus said, just start giving it out, and there were leftovers. Now, there's a cool story here of how Elisha is a clear picture of the Jesus to come, but that's not really the point. I want just to hear, in contrast to the first point, this truth, that God not only wants to take the bad things, make the bad things good, but I want us to hear that he also takes the good things and makes them more. I'm not great at math. I had some people fooled in school that I was better than I was at math. But I would make the following math assessment of this text. That, that, that the world often thinks that the Christian life is all about subtraction. Like all the things we can't do now that we're Christians. And we go around going, oh, I'm a Christian, I can't do that. I can't have all the fun you have. Right? That somehow the Christian life is this dull and dreary, dreary thing of subtraction. I can't do all these things. But listen, God is not teaching that here. God is teaching us here that it is more like addition, adding Jesus to what we have to make it fruitful. And then get this, multiplication of the good things in our lives as well. What does that look like? Well, as I am transformed by Jesus, as Jesus is added to my life by his grace and in his mercy, and I understand the reality of forgiveness, guess what I'm given? The first fruits of forgiveness that I might give away. As Christ has forgiven me, I then can forgive others. And guess what he'll do with that? 
He's going to multiply it. Because it's in all the Hallmark movies and all of the really great commercials, right? This pay it forward reality that is a godly principle in the sense that as we give, then it is multiplied exponentially. So as I recognize my forgiveness in Christ and I forgive others, hard to do, I get it. He will multiply it. As I give him my first fruits, he will feed more than I could imagine. When I understand the mercy of God and I begin to show mercy, he will multiply it. As I begin to understand grace in my life and I become more gracious, my first fruits of grace will multiply exponentially. When I finally get the fullness of the love of God, then as I take those first fruits and love others, God will multiply. You get it? You with me? You want me to keep going? Right? Because all the attributes of God that he indeed gives to me, when I share them, he multiplies. It brings a whole new meaning to the feeding of the 5,000 in the New Testament as we think about this Old Testament parallel in Second Kings. And pretty soon we have this hope that there will be no one hungry for these things, things of God, the things that God so desperately wants us to share. So will you, will you invite Jesus in to make your bad stuff good, and then will you offer this back as first fruits that God might multiply it in your life? And finally note that in these stories, the essential thing to see this come to be is that we must trust in God. The Christian life is all about trusting an amazing God who gives us hope that we might be messengers of hope. If, if you've heard that Lent or even more the Christian life is all about trying harder to deserve hope, ah, uh, hear that the Christian life is not that. It is not about trying to get clean that God might take you. It is that God has made you clean that he might use you. The guys sitting around who are invited to eat the stew, trust in the person of Elisha to eat the stew and be filled. It was trust in God. The one who brings the first fruits, it doesn't become a bystander and say, hey, why don't you have your guys do this? He becomes the one who gives it out. He had to believe. He had to trust. And as they did, they were filled. As this man indeed gathered the leftovers, he understood the miracle of God. I read this week, what should consume our thoughts and affections is not resisting worldliness, but the glory and grace of God revealed at the cross. What should consume us is not how we can put worldliness as out, but what should consume us is falling at the feet of Jesus to understand his glory and his grace to fill us. Our focus this Lent cannot be a focus of subtraction or trying to be better. It is rather a focus of addition and multiplication. The addition of Jesus to our broken lives that we might be transformed and the multiplication of the gifts God has given us that all might realize the hope that he offers so can we, people of God, trust him in the hard places? Can we, people of God, 
trust him in times and in seasons of uncertainty? Can we trust him in this thing called a virus? Can we trust him in a week where we see our nation's leaders make all kinds of decisions that we all have strong opinions about but need to come to our knees? To trust in God, not legislation, to fix this world and our country. Well, of course we can, because our God is indescribable, uncontainable. He is all-powerful, and He is amazing. He has done or is doing miracles in your life of transformation so that he might multiply through you. Don't miss the hope of life transformation because you are so consumed with behavior modification. Don't miss the miracle of this text, the hope that is provided in famine, a miracle of God to take the poison and make it life-giving, to take the little and make it much. Don't miss even the point of Lent, a focus on an amazing God who is taking the bad in your life and making it good, the good in your life and making it more so that indeed we might trust him in all things. Let's pray. God, would you indeed do that in us? Would there be one who is even in earshot of my voice that stands in a place in which they feel unworthy to be forgiven to hear today that God, out of your grace and your mercy, You've even entered into their pot of poison stew to make them clean. God, may we be reminded of that today, of the miracle of your good grace that indeed makes us clean. And may we then, in offering our first fruits, see your miracle, not our abilities, not our giftings even, but your miracle in taking that which you've given us and multiplying it exponentially for your glory. All that in our journey we might trust you more with all things. Uh, May that be. In my life, in our life as a church, and in life of the church around the world, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,